imagery, mm. uh, looking at pictures of galaxies and of uh, the, this planet we live on, very abstract photography from NASA mm. that's beautiful. Mm. You know, it's just color, texture, mm. but it's gorgeous. Mm. And tremendous detail obviously went into that. Yeah, tremendous yeah. detail. And obviously, I mean, that's, that's God's handiwork. Mm. And mm. then the other was Makoto Fujimura, uh, this artist. And uh, what Glenn was asking me to talk about is this style of painting that he works in. It's called Nihonga. And it's a, um, literally it means Japanese style painting. And it's less a style as it is a lifestyle. Huh. So it's a collection of these precious minerals, semi-precious minerals. Mm. It's a collection of handmade papers and silks. Mm. And literally these artists that work in Nihonga hand pulverize the minerals, the pigments that they work with. Wow. They use oyster shell for white color and azurite for blue color. And this is actually gold leaf that's overlaid on the top of this painting. And it's all a very tactile, kind of passed down from master to student generationally. But you can't sort of mass learn this. It has to be an apprenticeship to learn this art. Exactly. And so this artist spent like over six years studying under master artists to learn the techniques of Nihonga. Hmm. And then he took this, and traditionally Nihonga is um, a figurative style. So it would be representing a crane or a mountain or river, you know, hmm. something like that. Hmm. But Makoto took this and took all of the techniques and skills that he had learned over you know, six years staying with a master artist, and then he uses that to express an emotion or a feeling. Huh. Huh. And this one is called? The Golden Sea. Yeah. And it's supposed to be sort of his yeah, the, culminative project? or Yeah, a lot, a lot of people are starting to refer to this painting as kind of the uh, descriptor, the highlight of Makoto's career. And they're using this to kind of draw metaphorical conclusions to mm. everything he's done. Mm. Um, so just a, a real quick word about this artist. He, he's internationally recognized. Um, he has work in the permanent collections of the the National Museum of Japan in Tokyo, uh, the Art Museum. He has work in New York and all around the world. Uh, He was a presidential appointee to the National Endowment for the Arts. Very highly recognized. Um, And this this painting, people are describing as kind of his master work. If there's one thing Mm. he'll be known for, it's this painting. Mm. That's awesome. Thank you, Jeremy. Give it up for Jeremy. So let's see, took time to learn under an apprentice, hand crushes minerals to make the specific colors. This is, this is not freedom, for, this is not life without restraints. This is embracing an extraordinary amount of restraint for the sake of a beautiful outcome. Okay, Terry. Terry Moon this morning was playing with our worship team. Of course, Terry plays with the symphony and, and all of that. So Terry Moon, everybody. Now, the violin is not really one of those instruments that you just sort of pick up and start making music on, right? You want to try? No, 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 no. Talk, talk to us about just a little bit of all the technique that goes into, yeah. Okay, well, um, I, I was interested in what you were talking about, the road today, mm. because I actually use that kind of language with my students when I talk to them. Mm. There's a really long string here, uh, four of them. They're really long, and... There's a optimum place to put the bow mm. where it will draw the best tone 
And students often struggle with that when they're first learning. So I, I tell them, look, it's like the highway. You've got to drive your car right down the middle of the highway. If you don't, you're going to have an accident. <laughs> so we spend years and years learning the, the best way to make the most you know, beautiful sound. Could you demonstrate that for us? Like, 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 like do it the bad way first. Do it how I would do it. <laughs> okay, so there's a way up here. Sounds pretty fuzzy and nasty. And then there's way down here by the bridge. Kind of gritty. Which yeah. is not very good. Yeah. Um, and then there's in the middle. Okay, let's see. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Now, I mean, did you pick this up last week? Or, I mean, talk, <laughs> wink, wink. Talk to us about how much yes. time goes into learning this. Uh, well, I, I personally have been playing the violin for about 45 years. And, um, and uh, actually, I, I, I have so much more to learn. I was very humbled yesterday. I took an audition. And I was not chosen as the person to win the spot in the audition. So I'm, I'm still we would have chosen working you, really hard. We would have chosen <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so. Okay. Thank you, Terry. So art, music, we could think of farming. We could think of example after example after example. You could think about it even in the real world. You could say if you want relationships, if you want friendships to kind of work, you need to accept the restraints of saying, okay, at some point, I'm not going to just hang out with everybody. I'm going to say, these are my friends. Or in a similar way with a, with a marriage, if you want your marriage to work, you're going to say at some point, you know what, this relationship matters more than all the others, and so I'm going to schedule first what matters most, right? Our next series, by the way, in October is going to be all about relationship and relational health, and so we'll talk more about these things. But even, even when you think about life, I mean, Holly and I, we kind of sat down and we marked out all the evenings that we have committed over the next few months and sort of said, okay, so evenings, we've got X amount per week or whatever, wherever it is, we've marked it out in the calendar, and we're going to say that for the next few months, our evenings are closed. Now, why are we saying that? Because is it really closed? I mean, are you telling me, Glenn, you can't fit in one more? No, no, listen. I'm trying to put first, put on the calendar first what matters most. I'm trying, and I said, well, that's so, that's so restrictive. Right, but I want my marriage relationship to flourish. So I accept those constraints. Does that make sense? That's kind of how life works. So you walk away from this and you think, okay, all right, Glenn, I got it. So basically what Jesus is saying is uh, self-discipline. Just the, the narrow road is all about self-discipline. That's what I'm hearing you say. Accept restraints, accept constraints, and you'll be more like Jesus. Is that right? No. Because there's one more little catch to this thing. That actually the life Jesus invites us into is so constraining that it's actually suffocating. And it turns out that asphyxiation is how you die when you die on the cross. This sort of collapsing of the body and its breathing, so constraining. That really, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a person, he bids him, come 
and die. That the narrow road is not just saying, okay, I'll embrace a few more restrictions on my life. You got it. No, the narrow road is really Jesus' invitation to come and die. That's why our New Testament reading was from Galatians 2, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet the life that I live, I don't live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. This is a totally new kind of life. You know, it's interesting, I was talking with one of you earlier this week about this young people growing up in church and then sort of feeling like, yeah, I don't know, I think God kind of didn't work, God kind of didn't come through, and so I'm out. And we were talking about why this might be, and there's a million different reasons, and each person's story is certainly unique. But one of the things she was saying to me is maybe there's something about the kind of faith that they had in the first place, that it really was a kind of faith that said, okay, I want God to do these things for me, and so I'll follow him, and I'll go to youth group, and I'll pray, and I'll fast, and then when God does these things for me, great, but if God doesn't do these things for me, then I'm not even sure that this works. I'm not sure I want to have anything to do with it. But you know the trick about that kind of faith is that's not really a faith that ever made God Lord. Is it? That was a faith that always had you as Lord. That was a faith that tried to use Jesus as an instrument to your own ends. That was a faith that says, I'll follow Jesus as long as he'll do X, Y, Z for me. And when he doesn't do that, oh, I'm out. But you see, that kind of crisis of faith could be a a wonderful mercy because that kind of faith does need to collapse. That kind of faith does need to collapse until you come to the place of true faith where you say, all right, Jesus, I understand now that your invitation to me is not come follow me, do these things so then you can have everything you want. Come follow me so then you can find the person that you're going to marry. Come follow me and then you'll get the job of your dreams. Come follow me and then all your debts will be paid off. Come follow me and then life will work out. Come follow me and then you'll be happy and wealthy and wise. No, but you realize that Jesus is saying, come follow me and die. Let every desire, let every selfishness find its ending point. The narrow road (laughs) turns out to be an invitation to come and die. The wide road is a freedom that leads to death. It's a quote-unquote freedom that leads to death. The narrow road is a death that leads to life. And there's no switching back. See, it's not this thing of saying, well, I'm on the narrow, like, I embrace that Jesus has moral claims of me. I embrace that, you know, so I won't do the biggies. I mean, I'm not going to kill anybody. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to do the big ones. I've got moral constraints in following Jesus. But with my money, I'll do whatever the heck I want. It doesn't work that way, does it? If you've been paying attention to the sermon series, you realize that Jesus is asking for a total claim of your life. That he's saying, look, I, I, I want, when you follow me, I want a total claim over everything. I want it over what you think. I want it over what you feel. I want it over how you spend money. I want it over who you hate or who you don't hate. I want it, I want it so that there's not one little itty-bitty corner of your heart that you can say, Jesus, I'm on the narrow road on Sundays. And I'm on the narrow road when it comes to, like, I'm not going to, you know, like, have sex out of marriage. But I mean, everything, but, you know, you don't really care about all this other stuff. You know my heart. And Jesus is saying, I, I know your heart, and I'm asking for it. I'm asking for all of it. I'm asking for every lust, every anger, every unforgiveness, every itty-bitty desire to control, 
every urge to judge, every urge to hold a grudge, all of those things, I'm asking for all of it. But Jesus, that is so constricting, right? Jesus, that's so suffocating. I mean, that's almost to the point of death. What do you want? Right. You say, well, Glenn, I, I'm confused because I thought this was good news. <laughs> Have you ever received the gift that demanded everything of you? Parents know this feeling. I'll never forget standing in front of the, you know, French fry warmer thing. <laughs> so it's, it's not what it's called, but, you know. Sophia was born when our oldest was born, standing in there. Had this experience with all of our children. But I remember the first time. My parents had just flown in from the airport from Malaysia. We were all standing there and just phew, lost it, you know, just thinking about, oh boy. <laughs> I'm not a kid anymore, right? You all of a sudden you have that moment where you're like, I'm someone else's parent. Oh. And there's this unspeakable joy that keeps demanding of you, that won't sleep at night. <laughs> Sophia was like our, our fussiest little one, you know. And you think about this gift that costs you everything. But no parent would say, that it's still not a gift. You say, well, I, it's, just, it's still the most amazing thing I could think of. Or maybe you say, well, I don't know the kid thing, but, but you know what? There's marriage. I do a lot of premarital, do a lot of weddings. This year is going to break all my records of how many weddings a year I do. And I always tell them, I say, you know, your wedding day is like, it's the happiest moment for sure, but it's also like you're ending something. Like, your life as you knew it, and your life as you knew it, is over. They're like, what? what? <laughs> They're looking at me like, is that like a preacher joke, or is that like real, you know? <laughs> like, no, I'm serious. Like, this is real. Because marriage is the yes that costs everything. You don't say yes to her and say, but on Friday nights I can still call her? What? You don't say yes and then, but, but you don't mind an occasional, well, no, well, no. It's an all-consuming yes. And that's what the gospel is. It's an all-consuming yes. It's a yes that costs you everything, but it ends up being the most beautiful thing you've ever known. See, the same grace that saves us is the same grace that enables us to keep walking along this road. Jesus says, few find it. Think of you if you were a listener in that, in that crowd that day and you heard Jesus say, few find it. And you're, you're nudging your neighbor and you're like, I think he means like, we found it. And really you could say, it has been shown to you. Church, I want to tell you this morning, the amazing news is that you've been given the grace to find this road. You found it. Happy are you. You found it. You know, it's like knocking on the, the cave, waiting for the secret stone to roll away to find that, you know, how do we get into, you found it. It's been shown to you. The same grace that helped you find the way is the same grace that will help you walk the way. Jesus doesn't call you and then abandon you. Jesus calls you and sustains you all along this way. Why? Because this is the very road Jesus walked himself. 
The narrow road is the road Jesus walked all the way to Calvary. The narrow road is the road that Jesus walked bloodied and beaten all the way to his own death. And when he calls you along this way, he's calling you along a road that he fully intends to carry you down. See, secularism says, hey man, it's your life. You do whatever you want. You don't let some preacher tell you what to do. It's your life. You don't let your parents or you don't let your friends. It's your life. Autonomy. But that's a lie, isn't it? Because as it turns out, it's not your life. And even from a secular standpoint, you can see that your decisions greatly impact others. It's not your life. Moralism says, well, you get the life you earn. Whatever you deserve, if I earn it, if I work hard enough, I can get the life that I deserve. And that surely all falls apart the first time the good, faithful, church-going Christian experiences tragedy, right? Then you say, wait, I thought I got the life that I earned. So you don't really want the life you earn. You don't. That's a lie, too. Religiosity kind of says, well, you owe your life. It's obligation. And so every sermon, every preacher under this sort of religiosity kind of approach says, you owe it. You know, it's kind of that Jesus died and you can't even have a quiet time. You dirty, rotten sinner. <laughs> you know, it's like you owe your life. Jesus says something very different. He says, my life for your life. My life for your life. The church, the Latin phrase for this is the mirifica commutatio, the wonderful exchange. Calvin wrote about this in the Institutes. Listen to this. This is the wonderful exchange which out of his measureless benevolence he has made with us. That becoming the son of man with us, he has made us sons of God with him. That by his descent to earth, he has prepared an ascent to heaven for us. That by taking our mortality, he has conferred his immortality upon us. That accepting our weakness, he has strengthened us by his power. That receiving our poverty unto himself, he has transferred his wealth to us. That taking the weight of our iniquity upon himself, which oppressed us, he has clothed us with his righteousness. Now all of a sudden you see that the invitation to come and die is the most gracious call we could ever hear. It's the most gracious call we could. This isn't, see, the gospel is not Jesus being a killjoy and Jesus saying, well, I don't want you to have any fun. So if you cannot have any fun here, I'll give you pleasures in heaven. No. Jesus is saying, what you have is not really life. What you have is not really abundance. What you have is not really peace. What you have is not really freedom. See, there is a king in this world, and his name is pleasure. And this king promises freedom, but his words are a lie. His claims are a sham. But there is another king who has come. His kingdom is arriving. This king, at his right hand, are pleasures forevermore. In his name, there is freedom. When Jesus says, come along the narrow road, lose your life, 
that you will find it. He's saying the very thing that we do every week when we come to communion. We come to the Lord's table with empty hands. You don't bring anything to the table. This isn't a potluck. You don't have anything to contribute to this. You bring your nothingness and receive Christ's everything. You bring your emptiness and you receive his life. Amen?